What a perfect song, huh? Nothing else will do. Jesus, I just want you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and just get straight into the thing today. So I want to give you the bottom line of the message right here at the very, very top. Jesus is not looking for a better you. Jesus is looking for a completely different you. Jesus is not looking for a better you. He is looking for a completely different you. And, and last week, we kicked off this series on the Gospel of John. And, and in case you, you missed last week, we, we kind of talked about a lot of the things or a few of the things that, that make John's Gospel unique. One being that, 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 that all of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are all known as the synoptic Gospels, meaning that they're written in a similar time frame, and, and they, they cover a lot of the same stories and a lot of the same situations, and, and really paint a very, very similar picture to, to Jesus. But, but, but then you have John's Gospel. And John's Gospel was written a little bit later on, and John gives us this unique perspective of being one of the inner three. Like one, there, there are only three people that got to go with Jesus absolutely everywhere, and John was one of those guys. And so, yes, Matthew, he was one of the 12. He had an eyewitness testimony to what he was talking about. Mark, we know that he was, a, 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 he, he was discipled by Peter, and a lot of people believe that Mark was kind of just giving us Peter's story, but still, it, it wasn't coming straight from Peter. It was coming from Peter to Mark to us. You have Luke, who was this historian. He was a doctor. He just tells us that I thoroughly investigated every single thing that I'm telling you, and so you can have faith in what it is that I'm telling you, but, but John, John was there. He experienced it all. And so John's gospel, he gives us a little bit of a different perspective. He covers different stories and, and different situations. He, he, he talks about different encounters than the other three gospels. But John, all throughout his gospel, he is so, so clear in his purpose from the very beginning to the very end. All John wanted to do was to introduce you to Jesus. He wanted to give you the, the necessary proof to be able to know that Jesus is who Jesus claims to be, that, that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. John's not worried about telling you everything that he knows. He's not worried about telling you everything that he's seen. He's just worried about making this case so that you can know and believe Jesus. And so as chapter 1 begins in John's gospel, he, he makes this conscious effort to, to connect Jesus to his deity. He does this by looking all the way back to, to, to the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. You open up your Bible to John chapter 1, and, and you see the first three words. In the beginning, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, you see the first three words. In the beginning, that's not an accident. But John says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so here, John, he uses the word, word to, to identify Jesus. 
but, but this, this, this word that he uses, it's, it's so perfect for everything that John is trying to do because John knows that he is not just communicating to a Jewish audience and he is not just communicating to a Gentile audience. And so he uses this word that would be able to speak powerfully to, to everybody because Jesus did not just come for a Jewish people and Jesus did not just come for a Gentile people, but Jesus came for all people. And so whenever John uses this word, word, he, he uses the word logos here. Whenever the Jewish audience would have heard that, their mind would immediately have gone back to the creation story, this, this power that comes from the spoken word of God, the spoken word of God that is able to say, let there be light. And guess what? Out of darkness, there was light, like the spoken word of God that was able to create. And so whenever the Jewish audience heard this, they would have connected Jesus to the power of the spoken word of God, the, the creating word of God. But to the Gentile audience, they would have heard it in a little bit more of a philosophical way. Whenever they hear the word logos, their mind is going to, to hear this word that, that encompasses all of life and all of meaning and all of purpose. So how perfect is this word? Listen to it again. In the beginning, in, in the beginning was what was Jesus? Was Jesus this the, the, this one who 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 who, who uh, man? I have lost my spot. In the beginning was Jesus, the one who contains the power of the spoken word of creation, and embodies all of life and all of meaning and all of purpose. And then in verse fourteen, just in case anybody possibly missed what it is that that John was trying to say, he says this, and then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the full glory, the, 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 we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and full of truth. And this is the foundation that John lays at the very beginning. He's going to tell, he just wants people to know, Jesus is God. Everything that can be said about God can be said about Jesus because Jesus is God. So, one of the difficult things that we're going to run into throughout this sermon series, even though it's a pretty long series, I mean, we're going like 11 or 12 weeks in the book of John, is 11 or 12 weeks is not nearly enough time to truly be able to cover everything that we need to cover or would want to cover in John's gospel. So I want to do a little bit of a shameless plug here real quick. At the church, we actually have a podcast. Maybe some of you knew that. Maybe many of you did not know that. It is called the Prove It Podcast, and you can find it anywhere that you listen to your podcast. And over the course of pretty much the rest of this year, we are going to be going through the book of John in, in this podcast. And, and so you will get like 40 minutes, sometimes up to around an hour of us, our, our staff, just talking about a little bit more in depth on what we'll be able to cover on a Sunday morning, talking about everything that's taking place and John's gospel. But following John's opening remarks, since I'm just going to try and fill us in real quick between what, what we talked about last week and where we are today, following John's open re opening remarks, this place where he's laid this foundation, he tells us about John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist was one that a lot of people thought was the Messiah, but John the Baptist steps up and says, no, I'm not the Messiah. But then he identifies Jesus as being the Messiah. And then he, he, he tells about kind of how Jesus' ministry started, where he calls his first disciples. And after calling his first disciples, Jesus and some of his disciples were invited to this wedding in Cana. And it's at this wedding in Cana that, that, that Jesus performs his very first miracle by turning water into wine. 
But after the, the, this time, we, we see that after the, 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 the wedding at Cana, a little bit of time passes, and now it's almost time for the Passover. And this is something really interesting that John does in, in, in his gospel. He kind of helps us keep a chronological timeline of what's taking place in Jesus' ministry. You know, none of the other gospel writers do this, but one of the main ways that John wants to make sure that we understand where we are and how long is kind of passing in between is he makes sure that he mentions, mentions each Passover that takes place throughout the ministry of Jesus. And so here we have the very first Passover in Jesus' ministry, and we know that the very last Passover in Jesus' ministry was, I mean, whenever he was being crucified. And so John, he, he does that. The only reason that, that we're able to, to know that Jesus' ministry was approximately three years long was because John mentions three different Passovers over the course of his ministry. But here, Jesus, he, he makes his way to the temple for Passover. He's really, really new in, in, in his ministry. I mean, maybe some people have heard about his miracle in Cana, but I mean, there's really not a whole lot of people who know much about Jesus at this point in time. But he goes to the temple, and for the first time, he clears the temple. He shows up, and what he sees is he, he sees a bunch of booths kind of in the outer area of, of, of the temple, and and he sees people who are selling sheep, and they're selling goats, and they're selling doves. And then he sees another booth, you know, over here, and, and they're exchanging money because at the temple there was only certain kinds of money that was accepted. And, and on the surface, this honestly, it, it, it makes sense, you know? I mean, how awful would it be if it comes to time for the Passover, and you know this is the time where I have to offer a sacrifice for my sins, but... You, and, and, and so you travel like 30 miles on the back of a donkey, and, and you show up to the temple, and, and they look at the sacrifice that you've brought, and they're like, oh, man, that's not good enough. That's not going to work. And so it makes sense why they would sell these animals. It's like these animals were already pre-inspected. You know that they are good for sacrifice. And, and so you could show up, and you could just buy your animal, go make your sacrifice, and then, I mean, you're, 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 you're good, and in the temple, they only certain, uh, accepted a certain type of currency, and so whatever currency you had, you had to come to the temple and exchange the currency. I mean, all of this on the surface, it seems like, okay, that's not an awful idea, but if you just go one layer deeper, you realize, man, that has created an environment for all kinds of corruption, right? And that's what Jesus sees taking place here. He shows up to the temple, and there's just so much corruption that's taking place. And so Jesus, he goes in and he clears out the temple. He shows his zeal that he has for his father's house. And to all the crowds and to all the on onlookers, none of this was, went, went unnoticed. There were a lot of people who were asking Jesus and asking each other, who in the world does this guy think that he is? And that brings us to our text today here in John chapter 3. At the beginning of John chapter 3, we find a man by the name of Nicodemus who was obviously aware of what Jesus had done at the temple. Possibly he was aware of the miracle that Jesus had performed at Cana, but, but something had, had, had you know, piqued his interest to where he had some questions that he needed Jesus to answer. But to make things a little bit more complicated, Nicodemus just happened to be a Pharisee. And if you spent any time at all studying the New Testament you know that the Pharisees very, very rarely appear in a positive light. 
They were this prestigious group of, of Jewish religious leaders. And in total, there were only about 6,000 Pharisees. And yes, throughout the Gospels, they may not be seen in the greatest light, but one thing that you can know about the Pharisees is that they believed with everything that they had that they were doing the right thing, which should give us a little bit of a warning. You can think that you're on the right track all along while still being very, very, very far off base. The Pharisees, they were deeply zealous over the law of Moses to the point that, that they knew and, and, and they made it their life goal to follow all 613 of Moses' commands. You had 248 do's from Moses and you had 365 don'ts from Moses and the Pharisees did everything they could to obey all of them to the point that they even made up new laws and new regulations to make sure that they could protect themselves from breaking the originals. But, but there was this, this, this common problem that the Pharisees had. And, and, and listen to how Jesus described the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He said this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, and, but the inside, inside, they, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the dish and the, 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 the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, you teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of, of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The Pharisees, morally, they were good. And in terms of keeping the law, they were good. Religiously, they were good. Outwardly, they looked good. But the goal isn't to be good. The goal is to be made new from the inside out. Why? Because Jesus isn't looking for a better you. Jesus is looking for a completely different you. And this is where Jesus and the Pharisees would often find tension. So, so with that said, let, let's take a look at this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, beginning in John chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That is the Sanhedrin. It was this group of like 70 men that, that would be the combination of the Senate and the Supreme Court. What they said is what happened in the Jewish Culture. He, he came to Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Maybe he's talking about the temple, maybe he's talking about Cana, maybe there are some other things that have taken place that John doesn't even tell us about, but Nicodemus, he's heard of some things, he's seen some things, and he knows that God is with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus, you can just picture the puzzled look on his face. What, like, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And so after seeing what Jesus had done at the temple, after seeing, seeing what, what he did at the temple, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night. 
And under the cover of nightfall, probably so, so that way, you know, a lot of his Pharisee friends didn't know what he was doing. He, 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 it, it wasn't that he was turning his back on the Pharisees. It wasn't that he thought that the Pharisees were wrong in any sort of a way. It's just that there, were some, that there was something about Jesus that he just had to find out what was going on. He needed some answers. And so he shows up and he, he addresses Jesus by calling him rabbi and In Nicodemus' mind, this would have been a great compliment to Jesus because he was putting Jesus, although he didn't really know what Jesus had done, he was putting Jesus into like this same plane as himself. He, He was putting Jesus on the same level as himself. And he also acknowledges that that God must be with Jesus because nobody could do what Jesus was doing if God were not with them. But in response to all of Nicodemus' praise, Jesus tells him, He introduces this idea that a person, if they want to enter the kingdom of God, they must be born again. And for the first time in this conversation, but not the last time, Nicodemus responds with a how question. Not a why, not a huh, but a how. And one of the main themes that we see play out throughout chapters 2 and 3 in John's gospel it's this idea of, of old and new. And throughout this conversation, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that the old is passing away, but the new is now here. But still, how, how can a person be born again? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. That is a picture of, a, a picture of baptism. He says, for flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Verse 8, for the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus asks once again, how can this And so in response to Nicodemus' question of how, Jesus points to the wind. Have you ever seen the after effects of a tornado? Have have you ever, you know, you you may not have been present whenever the storm came through, but but you went maybe to help clean up or you were just driving through a highway and and, and you saw the after effects of a tornado? I, I remember May 22, 2000. 11. It's the day of the deadliest tornado in U.S. history in Joplin, Missouri. And I, I, I remember living about 50 miles away in southeast Kansas, watching the storm go over my house and just get more and more powerful as it continued to go. I remember that night, we, we had our Be the Church Day that day, and so we were getting together that evening to be able to kind of celebrate the day. And I remember showing up, and just a few moments before the service began, I had some people who started telling me, Andy, there's been a tornado in Joplin. I grew up right outside Joplin. I've been there a lot, and, and I mean, like my entire life up to that point. And, and I, I remember just having this thought of, well, no, I mean, people talk about tornadoes going through Joplin all the time. I had a favorite restaurant called Taco Hut in Joplin, and I remember these winds that went through and blew over the Taco Hut sign, you know, and I was so heartbroken about it, you know, but, but you know, we, we keep hearing, you know, no, there's this, this storm, there's a storm, and I'm not taking it seriously until somebody says, Andy, 
Range Line, which is the main street in Joplin, is gone. It's gone. And so we ended up canceling our service, and a bunch of people from our church hopped in their vehicles and drove to Joplin that night. I waited at home for, after calling my family to make sure they were safe. I waited and uh, ended, ended up going, you know, like 6 or 7 o'clock the next morning. And I will never, ever forget driving into Joplin and seeing the unmistakable evidence of this wind. I did not see it take place. But I could tell exactly where it had been. And that's exactly what Jesus says that the Spirit will do in the life of one who has been born again. There will be unmistakable evidence of the Spirit's action in that person's life. You may not see the moment that the Spirit enters, but you will always be able to see what the Spirit is doing and what the Spirit has done. Nicodemus, he had lived his entire life thinking that entrance into God's kingdom meant that you had to be a Jewish citizen, that if you were a Jewish citizen, unless you were just like really, really, really bad, you were okay, you were good. But Jesus is here to tell him, Nicodemus, that was the old way, but I'm bringing something, I'm bringing something new. Being born again is more than a respect for Jesus or a good opinion of Jesus, it is a wholehearted faith in Jesus, believing every word of Jesus, committing everything to Jesus. It's finding the unmistakable evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. It's transformation from the inside out. But again, Nicodemus, after hearing all this, he asks, how? And so Jesus continues, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. He's talking about the Jewish people. Like, if you would just listen to the prophets, if you just would have listened to everybody, this is what they've been talking about. This is what they've been looking forward to. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And then verse 14, and but just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. As Jesus begins, I always read this, picturing Jesus having this slight little smile on his face saying, Nicodemus, you're a smart guy. You know the law. You know the prophets. You're a teacher. But in verse 14 and 15, Jesus wants to take away any confusion that might be there. And he tells Nicodemus clearly exactly what he's been saying all along. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. And what he's pointing to here is he's actually pointing back to something that happened in Numbers chapter 21. At a time whenever God has brought the Israelites in, into, the promised, you know, into the wilderness, leading them towards the promised land. And, and there wasn't enough food for the Israelites. There wasn't enough water for the Israelites. And so they begin to complain, you brought us out of Egypt just to kill us out here? And they continue to complain. They continue to grumble and become more and more angry. And God, he ends up kind of being like, fine, I'm done. 
And so he sends all of these venomous snakes into the Israelite camp. And these venomous snakes start going around and biting people. And the people who they bite begin to die. And so as the Israelites look at all this taking place, they go to Moses and they're like, okay, time out. We're sorry, you know, like we'll stop. We'll be quiet. We'll be happy with what we've got. And so they, 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 they say, Moses, please go to God and have him call off the dogs or call off the snakes in this situation. And so Moses, he, he, he prays and asks God to relent. And whenever he does, God tells Moses, go make a snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten by a snake if they look at the snake on the pole, they will live. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying to all of you who may have missed it, to all who may have fallen short, to all who may be trying to find your righteousness in all the wrong places, the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up as in on the cross, and everyone who looks to him, everyone who believes in him, may have eternal life through him. That's huge news. And right here, some of the scholars, many scholars today, they, they believe that that was the end of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. If you look at the 1984 NIV, you will see that the red letters continue from verse 16 through verse 21. But in the 2011 NIV, all these letters are black. But either way, whether these are Jesus' words beginning in verse 16 or whether these are John's words beginning right here, we find one of the most beautiful sections in all of Scripture to further explain why the Son of Man must be lifted up. We read this. Why must he be lifted up? For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Nicodemus was so, so good. Like, I mean, he was so good, you guys. He wasn't like many of the, the Pharisees that conflicted with Jesus throughout the New Testament. We see that right here in John chapter 3. You continue reading in John chapter 7. Once again, you see Nicodemus coming to the defense of Jesus. You go to the story of the crucifixion, and, and once again, Nicodemus is right there to support Jesus. He was so so good. The best that the Pharisees had to offer 
It's been said that if Nicodemus were around today, that you would wish that he was your pastor instead of your pastor. He's got better credentials. He's, he, he's, he's more serious about keeping the law. He's made fewer mistakes. He's more humble. He's more knowledgeable. He knows the Bible better. He's everything that a church could ever look for in a pastor and so much more. But Jesus says, even to Nicodemus, this one that had the law down pat, this one who had this great affinity for Jesus, he says, your credentials in and of themselves are not enough. And for us, whether we are morally blameless or morally compromised, whether you think that you're really good or you live life disgusted by your mistakes, when you stand before God at the end of the day, the only thing that will matter is Jesus. Have you looked to Jesus to do what you are incapable of doing on your own? Have you allowed his spirit to transform you from the inside out? Inmistakable evidence. We cannot impress Jesus with our credentials and we cannot bluff our way into a good standing with him. So have you looked to Jesus to do what you are incapable of doing on your own? I believe that there's a big part of us, a big part of Jesus' followers that views the expression of our relationship with Jesus as simply being morally good. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't cuss, I don't gamble, I don't run with girls who do or however that statement goes, you know. I'm good. I'm good. And, and listen, being morally good is good. But it's not enough. But we truly try. We, we try so hard. We modify our behavior to make our hearts look so much better than what they really are. We worry so much about the ends outside of the dish while neglecting the inside. And for a bit, this might be able to work. It might be able to fool some people, but in the end, it will always fall short because it lacks the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Because in the end... It all comes back to this. Jesus isn't looking for a better you. He is looking for a completely different you. Will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, I thank you for the hope that we have in you. I thank you for the, the work of your spirit in our lives and in, in the church. And God, I pray that you will ignite something within us to any of us who are here and our hearts are sleepy and, and, and hardened, God, may, may you break our hearts and may you, you help us to see that, that just being good and just saying the right things and, and just not doing certain things is not what you're necessarily fully looking for. But God, you're looking for us to be transformed so that everything about us is different. The way we think and the way we talk 
the way we feel and the way we respond, our perspective on the world is completely transformed because of you, Jesus. May there be unmistakable evidence of your Spirit's action in our lives. May there be unmistakable evidence of your Spirit's action in this church. Because God, you so love the world, like all of us, those of us who have called on your name and those of us who have not, you so loved the world that you gave your one and only son. And as you have given, may we also give. May we not hold on to what we've received from you, but may we freely give. Jesus, thank you. We love you so much. Transform us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.